verse 8. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he took with him the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Graham, um, and it's good to be together and to be sitting under the word of the Lord and seeking him. We're in week four of our series uh, called Meeting the Lord, Up Close and Personal. And one of the reasons we've been doing this series is that we would love the Lord our God and that our love would increase and overflow. We would draw near to him and be transformed in the process. And today's story actually inspired this whole series. Just before it, in Exodus 33, 7 to 11, we read that Moses had a particular place, a tent of meeting, in which he regularly met with the Lord. In verse 11, it says, in the tent, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. And just after our story in 34, 29, we read, 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Time with the Lord visibly changes people. Imagine our joy together if each time we met with other believers, we saw faces radiant and souls at rest and hearts on fire because we'd spent time with the Lord each day. Ordinary people spending time with an extraordinary God and visibly changing as a result. So let's pray and with eager expectation, let's see what the Lord will show us today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as your children. Uh, we don't deserve that, but you welcome us. Welcome us into your family. We thank you that in the scriptures you reveal yourself so that we can know you. Please help all of us this morning to hear your word. Please do that work inside of us that we would believe and that we would rejoice and we would become wholeheartedly devoted to you. Amen. Now, I'm not sure what your favourite musical is, perhaps Phantom of the Opera or Les Mis, or maybe a throwback to the 60s, maybe it's still Greece. Um, but a well-designed musical has a recurring melody that ties the whole story together. And there's one particular verse in Exodus 34 that functions like this in the storyline of the Bible. If the Bible was a musical, verse 6 of Exodus 34 would be that recurring melody. This verse is the most quoted verse in the Hebrew Bible. And it contains such good news, for it tells us what God is like and it reveals the personality of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Now this verse describes the great I am that we saw last week as he actually is. In this verse, we see his glory. But we're in danger of taking it for granted. Imagine for a moment if these, verse, if these words were not true of the creator of the world. Imagine for a moment if he was a different personality, a God who is aloof and unkind, easily triggered, fickle and unpredictable. Imagine if that sort of God was in charge of our lives. It's important we don't assume or guess what God is like, but allow him to describe himself in his own words. We have some wonderful English translations to help us, but when the Lord first revealed his character to Moses, they spoke Hebrew together. And the Lord chose five particular Hebrew words to tell us what he is like. So today we'll explore the meaning of those five Hebrew words. And my hope as we do, as we do that cross-cultural work, my hope is that these truths will be planted deep in our souls 
and produce a life of humble devotion that is radiant with the glory of the Lord. So this morning, we'll explore this story with four headings. The mood on the mountain, the name of the Lord, the glory of Jesus, and two ways to respond. So the mood on the mountain. Last week, we were there with Moses on Mount Sinai, where he saw a burning bush and he heard the voice of God. That was his first encounter with the Lord, and it totally changed his life. The Lord said then to Moses in Exodus 3, I've heard the cry of my people. I've come down to rescue them. And this will be a sign to you that I've done what I have promised. You will all worship me on this very mountain. Well, in our story today, we find Moses again on that mountain, but six months later. And a lot has happened in those six months. A mighty act of the Lord has rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They're now gathered at the base of the mountain. The Lord has given them the Ten Commandments outlining how they are to live as his people. Moses had already spent a first period of 40 days and nights on top of the mountain. During this time, the Lord gave instructions about a special tent, a tabernacle, that was to be the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. But whilst Moses was up there with the Lord, things were getting out of hand at the base of the mountain. The people broke the first two commandments that they'd been given. They reject the Lord as their God. They begin to worship a calf-shaped idol. They even bowed down to thank this golden calf for rescuing them in Egypt. This is an absolute slap in the face for the Lord. After everything that the Lord had done in rescuing his people, in order to live amongst them and teach them his, them his good ways, how quickly they go astray and turn away. So at the start of chapter 34, the Lord commands Moses to climb to the top of the mountain again. He will have a second period of 40 days and nights with the Lord. The mood is a bit ominous. What will the Lord do? How will he respond? What does this particular God do when faced with such rebellion? Now Moses knows that the Lord is within his rights to walk away. The people have broken the agreement in such a defiant way. And so verses 5 and 6 come as genuinely good news. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. We hear this phrase again, the Lord came down. At the Tower of Babel, he came down to put a stop to the evil and scatter the people. 
At the burning bush, the Lord comes down to rescue his people. And here at Mount Sinai, the Lord comes down to show his glory, to proclaim his name, to reveal to us what he is like at the core of his being. It's time to take a deep dive into verse 6, and we will see five aspects of the name of the Lord. The first one, the Hebrew word rakum, it's usually translated compassionate or deeply moved. Rakum and the words related to it are used 99 times in the Hebrew Bible. These words are based on the word rechem, which means womb. We have a picture here of the tender care of an infant when it's most vulnerable. Rachum is an intensely emotional womb-like love. Have you noticed how a mother is so deeply connected to the cry of her baby? She has a capacity to ignore the cries of 99 other babies and tune in to the one for whom she has a womb-like love. This love moves her to do what is needed for the well-being of the baby. The love of a mother for her baby is one of the most intense and powerful expressions of human love. If you want to find out how strong it is, just stand in the way when a mother is going to rescue her baby. Yet listen to how Isaiah uses this imagery to speak of how the Lord is even more rachum than this. In Isaiah 49, 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Fathers can also have rachum for their children. Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Rachum is not just an emotion. The person is deeply moved. It's an emotion that becomes visible through action, most commonly acts of forgiveness or deliverance for, of a person in need. Isaiah 49, 13, shout for joy, you heavens, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people. He has compassion on his afflicted ones. The Lord is not detached or impa impassive or aloof. He is rakum deeply moved by the cries and suffering and needs of his people. He is filled with womb-like love to rescue and save and heal and protect. What a wonderful God he is. The second word, chanun, it's an adjective meaning gracious. Chanun and the words related to it are used almost 200 times in the Hebrew Bible. These words all come from a noun, chen, meaning favor or kindness. Chanun is often used in a relational sense, 
where one person, usually of high status, shows favour to another. The favour is given generously and freely without any sense of the obligation on the greater one. And often it's given to those who deserve the opposites. Now, when we lived in South Sudan, we experienced this when we would meet the Zol Kabir. Zol Kabir is Arabic for big man, the village chief, the governor, or simply the guy with the biggest gun. As a little person with no rights, you would go to the Zol Kabir and hope that he would show you kindness and give favour to your request. If you met a Zol Kabir who was kind, you could use this Hebrew word to describe him. The big man is Hanun. Now, because the Lord is rakum, compassionate with a womb-like love, he is also Hanun, granting favor and kindness. He gives freely and generously to the lowly, the vulnerable, the undeserving. Now, this is foundational for all of his future interactions with the humanity. And it also motivates many of the prayers of the Psalms. People crying out for the Lord to be Hanun to them, knowing that he delights to be so. Psalm 25, 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart. Please free me from my anguish. What a wonderful invitation to pray. What a wonderful God this is. Now we're going to move on to the fourth word. We'll come back to slow to anger in a moment. Chesed. This is a noun meaning loyal love. 245 times in the Hebrew Bible we read this word. And it always occurs in the context of a relationship of commitments, marriage, family, deep friendship. One of my friends engraved the word chesed onto his wedding ring. He wanted to give chesed to his bride. Chesed refers to actions that demonstrate loyalty in the relationship, preserving it, protecting it, making it flourish. It's a posture of loyal, loving, steadfast commitment that promotes life and well-being. The Lord abounds in chesed towards us. Listen to these verses, Psalm 118.1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His chesed endures forever. Psalm 103, 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his chesed for those who fear him. Notice how the three ideas of rachum and chanun and chesed come together in Psalm 51. Show favor to me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Because the Lord is like this, people like you and I can come to him. What a wonderful God this is. Emet. Emet is a noun meaning faithfulness or truth. 329 times in the Hebrew Bible. Emet can simply mean truth. But more often it describes a personal quality of faithfulness, reliability, a person whose character is true, in whom others put their trust. Now this is particularly true of the Lord, who is abounding in a mat. Psalm 19.7, the words of the Lord are trustworthy. They are a mat, making wise the simple. Deuteronomy 32.4, he is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness, Emet, who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The Lord is stable, trustworthy, reliable. He does not change. Because he is abounding and he met all his other attributes, his womb-like compassion, his generous favour, his loyal love, these are all constant and enduring. Listen to this famous verse from Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great chesed, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your amends. Whenever you come to the Lord, you can be confident. He is who he is, and he always will be. What a wonderful God this is. So we've considered four attributes of the Lord. It's time to consider this complex topic of anger as applied to the Lord. How does the Lord, with this particular personality, respond to sin and evil? Are you ready for this one? Arek apayim. It means long of nostrils. Now you might think, what does this have to do with anger? Good question. In Hebrew, a common phrase for becoming angry was his nose became hot. Now, in some ways, this makes sense even for us as English speakers. We know that an angry person often has a flushed and red face, and we have slang relating heat to anger. Steam was coming out of her ears. He reached boiling points. So for a Hebrew to be long of nostrils was a way of expressing patience and long-suffering and not easily angered. For a Hebrew to be long of nostrils was the opposite of having a short fuse. How reassuring is this? The Lord is not easily triggered. He never flies off the handle. He never blows his stack. He's slow to anger. He is a wreck, a paim. He is the God who is long of nostrils. 
He's not indifferent to sin. When faced with evil, he will not turn a blind eye. He will intervene rightly, appropriately, proportionately, justly. His anger at sin is controlled and measured and proportionate. Our default mode as humans is to be quick to anger and slow to love. But the Lord is not like us. His default mode is to be slow to anger and abounding in love. In Exodus 34, we're given a numerical contrast to help us understand this quality of the Lord. We're asked to compare a thousand with three or four. Verse seven. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now this verse may have raised a troubling question for you. Is the Lord punishing children and grandchildren for sins of previous generations? Deuteronomy 5 helps us here with the parallel passage and a clarifying phrase. It says to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, The children and grandchildren in the third and the fourth are continuing in the sinful ways of their ancestors. The Lord does not judge wrongly or unjustly. But let's get this visual contrast. Try visualizing three centimeters tall compared to 10,000 centimeters tall. That's this big compared to 100 meters high. That's the contrast the Lord wants us to see. The Lord overflows with grace and compassion and loyal love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. He judges sin and evil appropriately and proportionately, but he delights to forgive and heal and transform so that life and love and blessing would flow down generations from now and into all eternity. Now this, for Moses, was incredibly good news. Not even the blatant rebellion of the golden calf incident would be able to block the Lord's love for his people. Moses, this is who I am. This is what I am like. Compassionate, gracious, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness, so I am slow to anger. It's no wonder that Moses responded as he did in verse 8. He bowed to the ground at once and he worshipped. Do you feel like joining him? Do you feel like worshipping this unique and wonderful God? It's no wonder Exodus 34, 6 is the recurring melody of the Old Testament. But this melody was also building to a climax. It was preparing us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus. So where does this verse show up in the New Testament? Well, one place is in John 1, 14 to 18. 
Notice the many links to our story from Exodus. The Apostle Paul writes, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is one with the Father. He has made him known. The Lord came down and tabernacled amongst us. Those first disciples were able to see his glory fully revealed in the Lord Jesus. And notice the words that are used to describe the character of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Shorthand for the five Hebrew words that we've been exploring today. Later in Ephesians, we hear Paul singing from the same song sheet as he described the work of Jesus, where the glory of the Lord is seen most vividly. Ephesians 2. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. It's by grace that you have been saved. So how should we respond to what we've seen of the Lord today? Or to put it another way, if Exodus 34.6 is the recurring melody line of the Bible, do you hear the music? Has it resonated in your hearts? And are you moved to sing along? Let me suggest two ways for us to respond. Firstly, we could join with Moses and join with the disciples and simply worship the Lord with wonder and gratitude and joy. Praise him that he is not aloof and unkind, easily triggered, fickle and unpredictable. But praise him that he is the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. This week, begin each day with the Lord in worship. Take Psalm 86 or Psalm 103, read them. Pray them. Memorize verse 6 of Exodus 34. Take it to heart. Be amazed. Be thankful. Be full of joy. Response number two, walk in his ways. The true evidence of worship is that we become like the one that we worship. Our sporting heroes bring this out of us, don't they? How many young Aussie girls have been running around soccer fields lately wanting to be like Sam Kerr? Genesis 1 taught us that we've been made in God's image. Something of his character, his glory is written on our hearts. And as saved people, he is doing a work of grace within us so that we will be changed into his image and walk in his good ways. So some probing questions to reflect on today. How would people describe your character, your personality? Aloof, 
unkind, or perhaps compassionate, gracious, showing favor and kindness to the poor and the helpless and the undeserving. Fickle, unpredictable, or perhaps a person who honors their word, steadfast, reliable, trustworthy, and overflowing with faithful love. Irritable, quick to anger, or perhaps here is a person with long nostrils, patient, long-suffering, persevering. Imagine if you were known as that type of person in your workplace, your soccer team, your family, and every one of your friendships. Let's finish with a story. You may have heard of Hudson Taylor, but you may not have heard of William Burns. Both were missionaries in China, taking the gospel to the great interior where the name of Jesus was not known. William Burns served there for 21 years. He lived simply. He learned eight languages. He shared the gospel with thousands and he walked with the Lord. It said of him, prayer was his life, an extension of who he was. This was back in the day before internet, phones, even before radio. So to hear about other places in the world, travelers would arrange meetings and share stories about their adventures. At one event in the UK, a returned traveler from China was asked, Sir, in your travels in China, have you come across a man called W.C. Burns? The traveler looked, paused, and looked out at the crowd of 2,000 that had gathered to hear him and said, all China knows this man. He is the holiest man alive. William Burns would be shocked at this description. In his mind, he was simply an ordinary man with a humble devotion to an extraordinary God. But he had become so radiant that the people around him saw the glory of the Lord. And we are to be the same. We are to look to the Lord and worship the perfection that we see. And as we worship him, we are slowly changed to become like him. And then we'll sense a growing compulsion from within us, an impulse of the Spirit to go and serve to spread out, to be radiant with the glory of the Lord for all the world to see. Let's close with a prayer. Psalm 86 will help us. Let's pray. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. They will bring glory to your name. 
For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. Teach us your way, Lord, that we may rely on your faithfulness. Give us undivided hearts that we may honour your name. We will praise you, Lord, with our whole hearts. We will glorify your name forever. For great is your chesed towards us. Amen.